Welcome to the Volrath Feed. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, and today we have episode four of The Feed. Uh, joining me as always is Justin Pearson, our producer and color man on The Feed. Justin. Hello, hello. How you doing today? Doing quite well, thank you. And you? I'm doing all right. How was your week? Uh, I was pretty good, actually. The sun was out a bit more, and I felt like I've been a big enough disappointment to my dogs over the winter, <laughs> so we got out, stretched the legs a bit. And as every Wisconsinite knows, you got to take every opportunity you can to get out there and enjoy some nice weather. Oh, right. I we uh, I got outside, and you know, one of those days where you like come home from somewhere and you look over and you see something, you think, oh, I'm going to get to that, and it's just going to be a little project, <laughs> and you end up spending yeah. the entire day. Uh, preaching to the choir, brother. Uh, that was me on this this uh, past week. I had a lot of those were just a lot of good stuff, though. Got some things done that I wanted to get done, so. Yeah, well, what was your big project that you got done? Garden. Nice. I love gardens. Yeah. I love the planning of the garden and thinking all the cool stuff we can put in the garden. And then when later in the year, everything is, is needing to be taken out of the garden is the times I wish I had just a tiny garden. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But that's... What's your favorite thing to pull out of the garden? Oh, man. I lo- I, I used to really love uh, canning. So anything that I could can at the end of the season. And then it was more about the fresh things. So I'm all over. I'm, I'm like... Uh, I love tomatoes, of course. A fresh vine ripened tomato. Oh yeah, you cannot beat that. That is that's a little treasure of the world right there. Absolutely. Uh, even little cherry tomatoes. I I'll eat them like popcorn. Yeah. It just. Yeah. <laughs> I really... I really like cherry tomatoes off the vine, but for some reason I just can't do them from the grocery store. I don't know what it is, the texture, the flavor. They're sitting around too long. It just ugh. You know. Well, they're not nearly as flavorful, right? Yeah, that's that's for sure. One one year I remember I was I was going to grow the most flavorful cantaloupe. And a vine-ripened cantaloupe is really, really good. Mm-hmm. So I was out there every day, and I'd pick it up, and I'd kind of turn it a little bit and wiggle it, and then the vine would stay on. I thought, nope, not yet. And I kept doing that and waiting and waiting, and all of a sudden, sure enough, one day I wiggled it, and the vine fell off. I thought, today is the day, right? <laughs> so it was the middle of a hot day, and I brought it in the house just to let it kind of cool a little bit, but I didn't refrigerate it, just let it get you know out of the sun temperature. And, oh, I'll tell you what, that was an awesome cantaloupe. It's amazing, the difference. Cannot be beat. I don't know what it is with me and melons, but I seem to be cursed because every time I try, it just ends up in prolonged disappointment. <laughs> well, Liz, I suppose we should uh, continue on here with the show. We have, uh, you know, as always, our, our mission of our show here is to take a look into the diverse world of food service and everything associated to it, be it cooking or chefs, food, kitchens, equipment, anything in the industry at all. And I, I think it's always fun that I, you know, I've been in the industry a long enough time that I can always find a way to tie in personal life things into the industry somehow. Yeah. There's there's just always a tie, right? It's only natural. Right, right. Uh, Today, I thought we'd talk about, um, you know, when when we have to purchase items, be it anything in our personal lives, uh, for work life, whatever it is, we we go through a decision process, right? Mm -hmm. And what is that? Is it, uh, sometimes it's maybe cost? Am I going to buy this item once and use it once? Or is it longevity or quality of the outcome of the item? What are the the factors we look at when we make purchases? Yeah. And a huge component of that decision-making process is going through the reviews. I know when I'm on Amazon looking for whatever, I usually find myself going down a deep, dark rabbit hole trying to find the best possible thing for the lowest price. And you know, sometimes it it doesn't always end the way you want just because you can't be there 
physically inspecting the product to make sure that it it is as good or as bad as as people say right you know you think you think about like the reviews you ever find like you're reading a review and there's a lot of them that are probably pretty helpful and you think that the person was pretty objective when they wrote it whereas some people you know what their goal is right it's to make sure that they want they don't want that company to sell another product to anyone ever <laughs> right. that is the worst thing ruined my life don't ever do it yeah. And, you know, really, what what was it? It was that the person on the phone was a bit rude to them or something, maybe, right? Where suddenly, no, the whole thing was bad. <laughs> yeah, and it's like everything you've learned about human decency up until that point just goes right out the window. Right. And it becomes their personal vendetta to do everything in their power to destroy the company. Right. So, but if we look at even purchases, like thinking about the food service industry again, you know, bringing it all back around, as I say, always somehow to the food service industry, Operators need to do the same thing, right? They need to look at products. They need to understand, you know, why they're buying it. Is it a quick pop-up that's going to be around for a short period of time, or are they buying one-time purchases that are going to last them for a while? So they look at these things. And and the more and more we do things online and the more things we do without actually putting hands on product, you have to trust manufacturers. You have to trust your the, the person selling or the, the business selling the product, and maybe they have a rating scale of a good, better, best, or a value line or a you know, lifetime warranty line or whatever it is. But so there's just different ways that people can look at, you know, their purchase and how, what they're, what they're looking to get out of it. And I mean, this happens to everyone. And the worst thing is, is buyer's remorse, right? You're right. You had buyer's remorse, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Mine, mine was a car. So that was my big thing, probably my my biggest. Well, exactly. I mean, I've. What was your What was your big story on that, or what was the, the uh, part that? Yeah. So, I was quite a bit younger and quite a bit less mature, we'll say, about my decision making. So, I saw something flashy and shiny, and and I'm like, ooh, I really want that in my life, and at that point, you tend to ignore a lot of the red flags that that lead you to believe that you should probably consider something else. But I was blinded by that. So I decided, <laughs> yeah, this is what I really want. Oh. And two months into it, it really started to lemon out on me. You know, the muffler fell off and you know, that, that's the thing. It wasn't even that old of a vehicle, I, but it was all like all rusted on the bottom. I think it was some kind of flood damaged car, but. Oh, you didn't buy it new? No, no. Oh, um, okay. But you know, it was still a substantial purchase for for my age yeah and i'm usually the type of person that i guess has to learn the hard way so it was a valuable lesson gained that day that oh, no uh, doubt so if it seems like it's too good to be true you know oh, absolutely you know you mentioned like you, you maybe do it once and you you kind of learn from it and i remember when i was working at a hotel that had timeshare oh <laughs> I I was a timeshare salesman for like two months oh, no. of my life. Oh no, yeah, oh, I yeah. swear like, this. We didn't know this. I no. I just found this out about you. Okay. Yeah, for like two months of my life, and, and I was actually pretty good at it. And uh, I was way younger. And then it, it dawned on me at one point. I'm like, this is awful. I hate what I'm doing. You know, I I just felt gross at the end of the day. Like I'm just taking advantage of people, and it just. Well, tell me yeah. about this. That this was my perception of it, or one of the things I I, I kind of gleaned from when people would tell me about their experience. They would say their salesperson would be like, "Well, 
um, this is how much it would cost you like for a short period of time. And then they would, they would continue to talk about it and you'd get the people to say, yeah, that's, that's not too bad. You can afford that, right? You can work that in your daily um, budget, right? And people would say, yes, yes, nod in their head. And then he'd say, well, isn't your family worth this much a year that you can go to these timeshares? Wouldn't you want to spend that? Or, you know, bringing back so many bad memories for me. <laughs> right. So talk about buyer's remorse there. Right. But oh, I mean, that's, which, uh, which week did you buy? Red? No, no, light, or no. I was I was I had the benefit of a uh, little maturity and also of watching the process unfold a few times and hearing yeah. some of the, the people and some of their stories. But. You know, that's that's buyer's remorse on, on large scales, but even like small scale, right? I, I can think about occasions where I went to the store and I'm a handy guy, I like doing things around the house and yeah. I needed a, a saw of some sort. And um, I looked at them and there's the $400 one, which I'm thinking, well, I'm not a contractor. I don't need that level of a compound miter saw or whatever it was I was looking at. And then there was the $79 one. And I thought, well, I'm hopefully going to use it more than just a few times. So mm-hmm. you, you kind of land somewhere in the middle. You look at the features and benefits. You kind of line them up and think, you know, this one's me or that one's me. But very shortly after using it, maybe my second time or third time, the switch went on it. And then, of course, to try to find that switch, it just, again, you think back kicking yourself, thinking I should have just got the one I I knew it was a better one, paid a mm-hmm. little bit more money. I'd still be very happy with the purchase to this day, I'm sure. So there's just different ways to look at these purchases, right? In all levels. Oh yeah, when, when you're purchasing something outside of your trade or profession, it can be difficult to see the value of something beyond its initial price point. There's always the right tool for the job. And sometimes that means buying something that isn't gonna crap out on you after the first or second time you use it. Right. Well, then there's also that whole uh, and a, like an athlete will use the look good, feel good, play good kind of idea, mm-hmm. right? A golfer is never going to feel good with an inexpensive pair of clubs in your hand. You just don't think they're going to do the job where if you've got a better quality tool in your hand or a better quality golf club, you just automatically got a mindset that you're going to do it better. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, it feels better. It's got mm, in yeah, the hand. Yeah, inflates your self-assessment. Right, right. And and I can say it again, going back to the restaurant industry, if I was a chef and I had in my hand a tong that felt tinny and, and lightweight, I wasn't going to have, A, enough confidence in it to use it like I wanted to use it. Like a lot of times a chef will use a tong almost like an extension of your just your hand. You grab things with it, you pull pans out of the oven with it, you reach up in the broiler and pull things down. You use that tong, again, as an extension of your hand. Mm-hmm. If it's light and, and flimsy and you don't have confidence it's going to actually hold on to the thing you're trying to grab, it doesn't feel good, right? So all these things, again, relating back to to quality and looking at it. And I know at, at Volrath, uh, one of the videos I do, I've got two spoons in my hand, and I just simply take the spoon and quickly flip it and, and stop it, and the inexpensive one folds right over, and then, of course, the, the Volrath spoon just stays straight. And you can just tell when you pick them up, you can feel that quality in your hand. Um, it's a very good demo. But it also is one of those things you have to touch it in order to feel and to feel that quality, right? Yeah. Where you don't get yeah. that on the, the online is a tough place to, to get that. So you got to rely on the the brand mm-hmm. or the reviews, as you said. Right, right. Relying on what people have said. Business owners just have to trust that customers have had a positive enough experience from the beginning of the purchasing process all the way through the end life cycle of that product. Right. So, you know, again, at the Volrath company, even our smallwares with a lifetime warranty on them, 
you know, I, I've got operators that come back and, and they'll talk to us about um, uh, their their purchases. And, you know, our guest today, um, we've got with us later in the show, Ashley Tobeck, who is the executive food director at Children's Hospital of Colorado. And she she's talked about some of these things we just kind of covered where we talk about a little buyer's remorse, right? And sometimes, you know, in her position, having to, um, you know, she's an executive director. She reports to a board. I'm sure there's budgets and everything else. That's a that's a game you got to play a little bit, I'm sure. You know, we'll, I'm sure hear about some of her experiences doing that in her job. Oh, yeah, especially with the volume that a place like that has to go through. You know, you think about all the things that you have to consider when you're making a purchase on, on a personal level, and that is just amplified exponentially, you know, when you're doing it at that kind of level, you know, they just dissect every little thing and to determine what's going to be the most cost effective solution over the long term. Right, right. So we call the, the, the whole concept, I guess, if you if you summed it up was your, your total cost of ownership, right? Right. What right. is it? Is it the, it's the cost off the shelf? In the case of a larger piece of equipment that requires maintenance, it's the cost of maintenance, it's the cost of repair, should it go down? You know, we talked a lot about small items, but like your car, you know, that's a good example of one you could apply this concept of total oh, cost yeah. of ownership to very easily. Yeah, yeah. You got you got the maintenance, you've got fuel, you've got insurance, you've got financing, you've got depreciation. Uh, you yeah, wear and tear. Wear and tear. Downtime if it's in the shop you know, and you have right. to go and, you know, take a taxi or an Uber or hitch a ride from a friend. Right. These are all things that go into that. And then again, back around to the restaurant industry, when you've got downtime, things never break. If anybody who's worked in the industry, there's something about it. There's some some juju going on or something where things break down on Friday night at seven o'clock or Saturday <laughs> night at seven o'clock. They don't break down Monday morning. No, it's always no. At, Why would you know, right when you're ready to roll into your busiest time. And uh, so you really quickly can look back and have buyer's remorse if you made a bad decision there. So again, we can always relate to these things on all levels going back to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very much interested in hearing about Ashley's experience and thought process in large equipment orders and what she has to do and what that process looks like. So without further delay, we'll go ahead and patch her into the conversation. Oh, all right. Well, uh, with that, I think it's time to introduce our guest once again, Ashley Tobeck. She is the Executive Food Director at Children's Hospital of Colorado, and we'd like to welcome her to the show. Welcome, Ashley. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be with you guys today. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. We we like to start out with, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, maybe how you got into the industry. It's always an interesting story with most chefs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um my background is actually pretty varied. Uh, it started with eight years of service in the army. Um, and then I kind of went on to doing some things uh, in the education world, uh, mainly in special education. And I got really bored one summer while my husband was deployed and went, <laughs> I've always wanted to go to culinary school. Uh, why not? Uh, so this was late in life. How late? It, it, it was. Um, I mean, it, I've been in the industry for um, off and on doing different things on the side for, you know, over 20 years now. Um, but about 
this was 12 years ago. Um, and so I just, I, I was like, mm, well, let's, let's see what we can do and what we can come up with. And so I found a program, uh, in Colorado, we were living in Illinois at the time, found a program in Colorado and, uh, went, Hey, this lines up with summer break. Let's <laughs> go to Colorado for the summer. I don't have any other obligations and, and see how it goes. And I, love Colorado. I've always loved Colorado. And so we got out here from, you know, boring central Illinois. My husband's in Afghanistan. I have nothing else going on besides cooking and enjoying life. And I um, got online to try to find a couch to crash on. uh, (laughs) And in the process, found a job in a kitchen. Um, And so I was working while I was going to school and uh, just really enjoyed the people that I was working with and what I was doing. And of course, getting to walk outside and look west and go, oh, there's mountains here every day. Uh, And so I, on a whim, without talking to my husband, who was in Afghanistan, uh, put our house on the market and got an offer. And he called me about a week later and said, hey, how you been the past two weeks? And I was like, I'm great. When you come home on leave here in about a month, uh, just so you know, you're coming to Denver, not Chicago. Uh, I love you a lot. (laughs) Hopefully you'll come along with me. And he did. Uh, And so we've been on this awesome culinary roller coaster since then. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. And he, he was right along with you. No pushback at all. I, you know, he was a little, I think, uh, leery about leaving his family. Um, you know, he's an only child, so everyone was pretty bummed when he left. Uh, but we visit a lot. We we do a lot of FaceTiming. And, you know, he just said, okay, sure. Sounds like a fun adventure. And, you know, came right wow. along with me. So yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, well, it is tough to beat the front range there. I mean, it's just absolutely gorgeous. Lived in Wyoming for 10 years, and my wife and I spent a lot of time down in Colorado, Fort Collins to Colorado Springs. Yeah, it's just, they have like over 300 days of sunshine every year, so Mm -hmm. it's just really hard to beat that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to beat, especially compared to central Illinois, where there's, you know, basically two seasons. You have disgusting and humid or like (laughs) gray and soggy. Uh, And so, you know, we uh, I think we definitely won when it comes to to weather and, and scenery out here. Very cool. Very cool. So that did you did you enroll then in school or did you go right to work? Um, no, I, I did. I did, uh, the program at, at the time was called Culinary School of the Rockies. It was a privately owned culinary school in Boulder. Um, and just, I loved it. I, every minute of it was amazing. Um, and so I go to class for about five hours a day and then I go work for, you know, 11, 12 hours a day and, Mm -hmm. you know, eat, sleep, repeat. Um, and (laughs) it was, it was great. Uh, it was, exhausting um but again it was my summer break right i was i was working in a school and so i didn't have anything else to do and i was meeting really great people and learning a ton of stuff and so it was really really fun uh and it really gave me a chance to kind of dive into both sides of the industry the the classic education side of it um we were learning you know classic french technique with a a farm to table 
element, right? Um, mm. You're in the middle of Boulder. You have mm. the best ingredients. We got to go to the farmer's market once a week and and get food and, and bring it back to the kitchen and, and learn how to cook with it and all the different techniques we could use. And so that was fantastic. And then I got to go play in the kitchen with a bunch of people who are still my best friends in the world. And so I really got a great experience out of that summer. Well, that's cool. So your first experience in the industry, I think we heard a story. Is it, can you talk a little bit about that first job that you had and how it kind of went to the next level? Sure. I mean, excluding, you know, everyone's first experience in the industry, either, you know, delivering pizza in high school or working fast food, right? Um, I I worked um, at, a, a, for a family, uh, the Coens, um, and uh, they owned the Empire Lounge in Louisville, Colorado, which is this tiny, idyllic little town on the Front Range. It's amazing, the main street. They, I mean, they have street fest every Friday night in the summer in the whole town comes out and it's it's everyone's like hometown experience um and then they were opening a pizzeria at the time and so i was you know really interested in the pastry side of what we were doing and i think that the science behind food is really what kind of tugged me in and keeps me excited about the industry and so i was playing around with all sorts of different recipes and and breads and things like that and so when i when i met them they were messing with their pizza dough recipe and you know how long should it ferment and taking it from what they had perfected as like a 10 pound batch size to you know a 120 pound batch size uh and so that's really where i got to kind of play and have fun um and then the rest of the time i was you know standing on the line uh you know making salads or plating desserts or whatever they needed me to do i did a lot of prep work that summer i washed a lot of dishes i you know wherever wherever they wanted me i i kind of dove in uh they were you know unbelievably gracious in hiring me when I didn't really have a lot of education or uh, professional experience. And they just kind of taught as I went. Uh, It was trial by fire most of the time. Uh, Friday night was, you know, we, the dining room at Empire set, I don't know, like 100 plus guests at any one time plus there was a back room for parties and the bar and all of that stuff and Mm -hmm. there was always that one point in the middle of friday night where there you know the expediter would literally just yell across the path like no more orders no more orders because we were (laughs) you know the tickets were just screaming in and you it was it was unbelievably fun and yep and and every day you you leave and you're you're exhausted and sweaty and you have no idea why you just did what you did when, you know, you have like master's degrees and could go work in an office somewhere where there's air conditioning. But the next morning you get up and you go back and you have a great time. So what, what do you think the reason was that they took a chance on you? Do you think they saw something in you or they just are great people and they want to give everybody a chance? Um, Jim is, it, uh, well, first of all, Jim Cohen is the the Kevin Bacon of the Colorado food industry. Um, everybody is connected to him in some way or another. It's really, <laughs> really fun to meet people and try to figure out how they know Jim. Um, he's worked all over the place. Uh, he was the executive chef at the Phoenician. He's uh, worked in Vail. Um, so he knows a lot of people and has a huge network. But he's, um, at the end of the day, as 
tough of a chef as he is, as, as scary as it was to be in his kitchen. Um, he's kind of that like classic dad figure in life, right? He he wants to just uh, to make sure that everybody gets a chance and everyone can succeed. And he gives you one chance in his kitchen. And if you mess it up, you messed it up. And that was your one chance. Um, but he will give anybody one chance from, That's cool. you know, uh, the person that walks in off the street, his accountant's nephew who is going to business school and needs something to do for the summer. You know, um, so I think it was just kind of his habit to give people a chance. And I happened to just fit in well with the crew that he had and was willing to take the time and learn to do things the way that he wanted them done. Uh, and I think that that really is why I got to stay on with him. Um, Mm-hmm. And and why I kind of got to got the chance to do all the things that I did with Jim. I was gonna say I think you said something about he was he was a tough chef to work with, but it's those tough chefs or just like a teacher in school that pushed you and challenged you and made you do the job the right way. You you learn so much from those people and you appreciate it, right? Oh, absolutely. I um you know, I, I went to culinary school. I have a, I have a culinary certificate. I have a pastry certificate. I, I have multiple degrees from different education programs. I have, I, anytime anyone asks me, I will tell them that I learned more about the culinary industry and how to do what we do from Jim than I did from any of that, because he was very particular. He wanted things exactly the way he wanted him, but because he wanted them exactly that way, he was willing to answer why as many times as you wanted to ask it well why did we do it this way why wouldn't we do it this way why would why would we do this why this why that um a lot of times i felt like you know that annoying four-year-old in his kitchen where i just like every time he answered a question i'd say but why and he always had an answer for me and i think that that you know to a certain extent i know it made him crazy but i also know that it made right that that also kind of feeds the chef ego, right? If someone yeah. keeps asking you questions and drawing on that knowledge that you have, you're like, yes, I know what I'm talking about. I am the master of this and and I get to share it with someone. So How cool. So um, how long did you work in that position then as the chef in that uh, for Jim? Um, so I worked for Jim, let's see, three years. Um, and then I actually like... It was longer than three years, but really three years straight through. Um, after that, I kind of decided I wanted to explore a little bit more, right? You can you can only make so much pizza, right? It was fantastic and we had so much fun. But when you're in a, a thousand square foot space and your kitchen is, you know, 200 square feet and you've got <laughs> a pizza oven and that's that's your heat source, right? There's, there's a limitation to what you can do. And so I got to the point that I was like, Jim, I've... I, I don't want to leave you. I love what I'm doing. I love the family that we have here, but I've kind of outgrown what I can learn here. Um, and so that was the other great thing about working for Jim is uh, he really let me kind of, I mean, I, I, I part-time executive chef for Jim for like a year and a half or so uh, and explored positions with other chefs in the area as well, doing pastry, doing, uh, you know, working on their line a couple nights a night a week just to, to see what was out there and to learn what I could. Um, and he also let me have the greatest opportunity. It, it kind of led me down the, the path uh, a little bit further and, and helped me figure out exactly where I wanted to be in the industry. Uh, I got a call from the culinary school that I went to. Their career services director remembered that I had an education background. And she called one day and she's like, 
So we have class at 5 p.m. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, our instructor was just in a car accident and mm. we need someone to come teach cake tonight. How do you feel about <laughs> it? I went, well, I know how to bake cake. I know all the science behind cake because I'm a nerd and that's what I liked about culinary school anyway. And so, sure, I'll come teach your cake <laughs> class for you tonight. Uh, and I, six years later, I was still there. Um, <laughs> that's so, what happened. Right. I it was it was great. It was a wonderful experience and it really helped me figure out that what I really like about food is is sharing food with others, not just cooking food, but helping others to understand food and and the why behind what you do. And so I became the person that everyone asked why nine million times uh, and and helped to kind of drive that. My education experience and background helped me to work with a company that was launching an, an online culinary school, which when they first told me that's what they wanted to do, we all looked at them like they had three heads because <laughs> who teaches culinary school online? You need to be there. Uh, and the more we talked about it, the more we realized you don't need to be there. You can you can teach culinary school online. You can talk to a person about food and, and make sure that they understand what's happening with the food and, and how a food product changes when you apply heat to it. And then you look at pictures of what they did and you ask them questions about what they did and you have them describe how it tastes and how it feels and, and people learn and, and they can go on to have really great careers in the industry. And so I, I kind of got the best of both worlds there. I got to cook when I wanted to, because we had a ground school uh, that, I could walk in and, and work with the students in the kitchen at any time, or I could sit and stare at my computer screen and talk to students who are in their kitchens trying to figure it out. Wow, that's that's really different because if you think, again, about traditional culinary schools, there's no way you'd think about that being online. But if you gave it enough thought as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, I could, I could see how that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, after teaching, you moved over to the Children's Hospital. Did you start out right at the executive position? I did, yes. Um, so I, I've i been a big uh, member of the Colorado Chefs Association since I got to Colorado uh, because it was a great way to meet people. And I so I knew a lot of people. The, the previous executive chef at Children's was uh, the president of the Chefs Association. And he and I talked a lot. And he was always posting pictures about the unbelievably cool things that they did at children's um, like the great potato race, which unfortunately coronavirus meant we didn't get to have this year. But generally on St. Patrick's Day, we allow our patients and families and, and team members to build a potato car, right? It's like your Pinewood Derby car, only it's out of a potato. And you either build your <laughs> potato car or you decorate a potato and there's a potato beauty contest. And then we run races in our giant atrium in the middle of the hospital all day. Um, and, you know, we have a flash mob on Halloween every year and the patients can come sit in the atrium and look at all the staff members in their costumes and we do crazy dances and it's, it's just a really, really fun place to work. And so every time he posted something, I was like, man, that is really just the coolest job ever. Uh, and I loved what I was doing at, at the school, but I I was kind of missing the kitchen at that point. And uh, just, again, you know, you get to the point where you've, you've been in a position long enough that you're ready for a new adventure. And so 
one day he pulled me aside after a meeting and he said, hey, this is totally a secret still. I, I've only sort of kind of talked about it with my family, but I'm thinking about moving on from children's and I, I thought you should know. And I was like, uh, where's your boss? What's her email address? How do I get her a resume? Like sign me up right now, pick <laughs> me please. Uh, and so that kind of started a, a three month long process of, of talking and discussions and interviews with the entire leadership team at the hospital, which is a lot of people. And, you know, I, I finally got to the point where I was like, okay, this is it. This is what I want to do. I imagine working at Children's Hospital has got to be a truly inspiring experience with a full range of emotions. And what what is your personal mission statement in your dealings with staff and kids and the families? Sure. Um, you know, I, it's really funny because a lot of people think about uh, what I do from the perspective of, of the kids that we treat, and they're a major part of what we do, right? My my goal is to to feed kids so that they can get healthy, right? They we need to provide food that's going to support whatever treatment path that they're on. Uh, but what I really look at it as is more the the family members who are there potentially experiencing their worst day ever. And they they need a wholesome meal. They need something to help them get through that. And our team members who are putting in every bit of themselves, their heart, their soul, every bit of energy that they have to provide those treatment paths for our kiddos. And, and they need nourished as well. When you think about hospital cafeteria food, most people go, oh, who goes to a hospital to eat? My goal, my mission, at Children's is to make our cafeteria a place that people want to just come in off the street and, and have a meal. It, it shouldn't be hospital food. It shouldn't taste like hospital food. It shouldn't look like hospital food. Uh, and I really think for the most part, we're actually succeeding at Children's. We've done some amazing things with our menu and we're continuing to just to try new ideas and, and have fun. But I mean, we have a station that runs specials that my sous chefs and my lead cooks make every day. And we have everything. We served whole trout and risotto a couple weeks ago at, at the station. Like wow. who, who walks into a hospital and expects to get whole trout? And it, the goal is that it's not hospital food, that it's really nourishing and comforting and an experience for folks who potentially are having a really, really lousy day. I can't imagine. You're right. Some of those people coming in there that, that you said it is a very, very bad day for them. That's can't imagine. Um, you know, so are you in a dual role there? Do you Are you the uh, executive food director and corporate chef, or is that all one role? So, your position? Um, my my official title is executive chef. Um, we have I work with our food service director who manages both the patient feeding side and the cafeteria side, um, and then we actually have several other managers in our department that I work with as well. But um, we we get to have a ton of fun. Oh, so you're so you're in on all those. Uh, we were talking earlier in the show about equipment and buying things and and so yeah. you're in on all those decisions as well oh yeah that's got to be a huge amount of stuff that you it's have to order massive um i started almost exactly two years ago so uh just a, about a month away from my two-year anniversary at children's oh, congratulations and thank you in my first couple of weeks we were uh adopting a new computer program that allows our patients to order their food through the TV in their room. Um, and that 
ended and then about three weeks after that, so I don't know, we're on week six or seven in the job and we installed a brand new salad bar, which was my my first dive into the Volrath experience and really where I learned why you buy Volrath the first time and not the <laughs> second time. Uh, and then uh, we created a grab-and-go station in about three months later and we opened a medical office building about six months after that and we just opened a brand new inpatient facility about three weeks ago so in two years we've radically changed and expanded the things that we've done in our food service department and i i've learned a ton about how you build a hospital kitchen uh, and and how to do what we do a little bit better. Um, but yes, I get to be involved in all of that fun side of of things, and also the the crazy side of you know opening a brand new uh, inpatient facility. You mentioned uh, front of house stations, right? As well, like the dining mm-hmm. experience. That's all a big part of of where things are heading. And you're right. The the old days of a cafeteria just you don't nobody wants that anymore, right? It's just all about being out front and seeing those front house experiences. What decisions do you make when you're looking at those kinds of spaces? Is it, do you, you obviously design it around the menu, but you look for flexibility or what are some of the considerations you, you make when you're designing those stations? You know, we're always looking for flexibility and um, just being able to offer the widest variety of options in the least amount of space. We are, Super lucky. We are also one of the only hospitals that I've walked into that the cafeteria is not in the basement or in a back hallway somewhere, or you walk into children's, you hang a quick left, and we are right there. And we have this huge, beautiful dining area and a glorious cafe space. And uh, there are absolutely zero complaints, except for the fact that we are now officially landlocked by everything else in the hospital, and (laughs) we can't grow. So not only are we space constrained, but when you're landlocked, that also means you only have so much electricity. Uh, so that's our biggest challenge is really to take the space that we have and and continue to expand and grow and offer as many options as we can, right? You're, you're constantly trying to get in. You need a good protein option. You need a really quick grab-and-go option. You need a fantastic vegetarian option. You need something that's vegan and you've got to have gluten-free and you need to hit all of the different things that people are looking for and still provide an experience and be able to do it at hospital food prices and in, you know, five minutes or less because everybody has a 30 minute break at the same time. Are you open up to the general public as well? Yeah, we we definitely are. Um, We are very conveniently located on a huge medical campus. So we have a VA hospital as a neighbor on one side and we have a university hospital as a neighbor on the other. Um, And it is my sincere pleasure to run numbers at the end of the month and look at how many university hospital employees came and ate lunch in my cafeteria instead of theirs. We, we any, anybody's welcome to come in and eat. And, you know, um, like I said, my goal is really eventually someday to get to the point that people are like, oh, hey, we're, we're, we're right here in the middle of Aurora, Colorado. Let's walk into children's and eat lunch because we know it'll be great. Um, so that's a huge I, compliment, right? It is. It really is. And, and, and I think we're getting pretty close to that. We, we see a lot of people that come in, um, 
you know, they, they eat in our cafeteria because they're there as a patient. Uh, but the, the kiddos and the families that come back for those outpatient visits and, and schedule the time in their day to make sure that they get to come to the cafe while they're at on site is pretty neat. Justin and I, in the first part of the show, we were talking about um, buying items and, and buyer's remorse. Do you have any buyer's remorse stories you, you could share with us? <laughs> that, all the um, things you've... It just, for no reason other than we shared earlier. And... Yeah, Rich was doing a great job of bringing up some painful moments in my history. <laughs> uh, well, um, I mean, on the on the personal side of life, I, I had a car once that was hey, just... Hey, all right, a, I'm not alone. Yeah, right, uh... absolutely a major mistake. There was, there was some significant buyer's remorse there. Um, but, you know, from a, from a kitchen side, uh, honestly... It's the the little things that you buy that you think are going to make your life so much easier and and then they don't and then they become a major problem or a, a hassle or, you know, um, I've learned in working for such a large company uh, that you don't buy anything without thinking through every single part of the process. Um, when I first started at Children's, uh, I you know, you're learning and, and in a place that serves 3000 some customers a day that it takes a long time to learn things. And so I finally got to the point of starting to actually calculate uh, portion sizes in our cafe. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at our recipes and I'm like, man, our food cost is, is beautiful. And luckily I, in a hospital, food cost is not your main metric because there are so many other things going on on the back end, but as we're looking at it, I'm like, okay, this this works. And then I'm I'm meeting with our sales reps for our big vendors and looking at our our annual spend, and I'm like, oh my goodness, like that's that shouldn't be anywhere close to the number. We we should not be buying that much food. We're definitely not selling that much food and trying to you know figure out where things are at. And so I start looking at the portions that are getting served in the cafe and. At that point, we have, you know, whatever uh, easy to find run of the mill aluminum serving spoon you can find, right? Nothing portions, nothing uh, out there. And I'm like, uh, so this is our problem. We, we're, we're not portioning anything. No one's measuring anything. They put a plate together and they go, oh, this looks great. And our guests love it because for five bucks, they're getting like three pounds of food for lunch every day and, <laughs> and everything's wonderful. Uh, and so, I'm calculating it and I have my boss sold, but she, at that point she was also pretty new to the organization. And so we're like, how do we, how do we do this? You know, uh, like no one wants to listen to the fact that we need to go make this major purchase of small wares to, to try to, you know, uh, to do this. And so I sat and painstakingly with my chef level math skills. I, I can calculate food costs, but beyond yeah. that, I'm, I'm not a mathematician and built the spreadsheet that shows, you know, okay, if I, I, I need to invest in, you know, 54 ounce poodles and 206 ounce poodles or whatever the numbers were. And, and this is what it's going to cost us. And then on the other end, here's the amount of food that we are giving away every single day because we're not using these items. And this is what it's going to cost us. And again, like like I said at the beginning, I uh, I learned in the army that you you have to know when to communicate with a leader, and as much as how and and what your messaging is, right? And I got to know our um, 
executives uh, pretty well. They they are great leadership programs at Children's, and so our um, CFO is just the funniest guy in the entire world, and he was the leader of. Uh, my my leadership initiation and, and training cohort. And so, you know, once you've had those, those side level conversations and you've shared a meal with a person, you get to know them a little bit more and you, you start to understand who they are. And so I just stalked his assistant for a couple of days and I was like, uh, I just, I, I, I don't need a meeting with him. I need to know when he's traveling from meeting to meeting uh, so I can accidentally run into him in the hallway and essentially Ambush, yeah. I, yeah absolutely it, 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 uh, he's gonna listen to this too and he'll now what my tactic is um, but, uh, but he, you know I just caught him in the elevator one day and I was like so this is what we want to do this is why we want to spend this amount of money I know it seems like a really large amount of money for what you're saying is a spoon like I, I really get it it but it's not just a spoon this is what it gives us and and so he went, okay, fine. I think mainly because he really wanted me to get out of the elevator. Um, <laughs> but it worked. Uh, and since then, I, you know, it's, it's not just about the product. Uh, it's also about the service that you get uh, and the, the guarantees that are on Volrath products, right? Uh, who, who guarantees a, a spoon that gets caught in a big conveyor dishwasher and breaks in half, right? Like no one does because it happens all the time and they disappear and, and no one can prove what happened to it or that it was faulty equipment or it doesn't matter. You call Volrath and you send him a picture and you say, hey, look at this really cool thing that we figured out how to break a dishwasher with. Uh, <laughs> and, and they send you a new one. So, uh, you know, all in all, it's it's a great relationship uh you get great product uh and and it's well worth the investment but then you also get that relationship with the company and and the backing of the product which makes a huge difference when you run around all day trying to feed people and open new facilities and make decisions that are going to impact five years from now ten years from now you don't have to think about it right no that that's a, a great point when you talk about um you know not only the the longevity of the product but the accuracy that you get measuring correctly. Mm -hmm. I was amazed at one of the things we had, at, we looked at uh, dishers and um, even some of our competitors that you'd, you'd think, well, they make a decent product, I guess, but uh, when you measure them, they're not accurate. They're not guaranteed to be accurate. And look at what that can do to your food cost, right? You you said it, your, your food cost on paper should have been fine, but yet when people were over serving each time, so all those things roll into really the quality of the product. And that, that spoon you're talking about, our basting spoon, I always tell people, I think you could literally, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try to pound a nail. I always say you could pound nails with those spoons. They're so hard. They're so I, durable. I am pretty positive you can. Um, we. <laughs> I have to do it now. I'm going to. We, we took down a dishwasher with one and the spoon was fine and the the pipe that it got caught on in the dishwasher was, um, it it looked like the Hulk had attacked it. Like oh, wow. it, they are strong. They will they will take just about anything. Okay, well I think that's it for today's show. Ashley, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate you taking some time and uh, love hearing about your experience. That is just amazing the stuff you you've talking about here at your uh, different yeah for sure areas you've been with. Any any last thoughts? Uh, anything you might give some advice to someone in the industry or coming into the industry? 
Yeah, absolutely. The best advice I ever got in this industry is to stay hungry. Stay hungry for new food, stay hungry for new knowledge, stay hungry for new experiences. Uh, you'll, you'll never go wrong in life if you're constantly looking for something new and looking to understand more about what you do. Very cool. Justin, uh, any, any last words from you from today? Yeah, I'd like to thank everybody for taking the time to listen to us today. And thank you, Ashley, again, for being with us as well. I'd like to remind you all to hit that subscribe button. Never miss a moment. Never miss a topic. Never miss a chef. And if you like what we're doing, go ahead and share that with your friends as well. We'd greatly appreciate that. Perfect. Thank you. And again, if anybody has any thoughts about a topic that we've covered on the show or ideas that you'd like to see discussed, please visit us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote of my own. Uh, to remember in whatever you do don't worry about the other guy just focus on what you do best and no one's going to beat you that's it for now until next time everyone take care